there's enough space for all of us and there's a place for all of us. And if you have a good product and a good brand, you'll do okay. People will migrate to you, like they will flock to you. everyone and thank you so much for listening in i am roberta the illustrator behind happy impulse and this is happy impulse unfiltered a bi-weekly podcast where we talk about the bullshit happening in our society and i create art about it because the more we talk about this shit these issues the more we can change and better the world around us so welcome to happy impulse unfiltered and as always thank you for giving a fuck I am super stoked and I want to welcome Cruz May to the podcast. He is a creative badass making custom leather products and some pretty sweet kicks. So Cruz, thank you so much for being here. How are you? I'm good. Before we dive deeper, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, my name's Cruz May. I am from Louisville, Kentucky. I lived on the Indiana side and kind of traveled back and forth. To cut a long story short, I'm a creative. I went to school for graphic design. I've always had my hands into art and things like that. And now I work at District Leather Supply. And I'm also a maker and creative and try to make leather goods. Primarily right now, I've been focused on custom sneakers. So like Nike Jordans and try and do other silhouettes and things like that. And uh, yeah. So you have an interesting background with leather goods. Yes. Now, you and I have had conversations about the meat industry and how leather is actually sustainable. Would you mind giving some insights? Yeah. So I think I remember you coming into work one day and bringing this topic up. And so let me just say this first. Everything I say is non-factual. Like it's just my opinion (laughs) and what I've heard from other people. So please do not take this to the bank. But you brought this topic up talking about is leather sustainable and what did that actually mean? And vegan leather and even that conversation, just those two words in itself is just funny to me. Like why even call it leather if it's going to be vegan? Leather is what it is. It is the hide of pretty much any animal that you can tan. In today's world, obviously there are people that do things the wrong way. And hopefully most people do it the right way, but we all know people cut corners and it's not so pretty. So your question is, is leather sustainable and is it better to go vegan leather or things that didn't actually come from an animal? And that's up to the individual. But what I can tell you is the animal is going to get killed regardless with how much we consume as far as just the meat alone. The animals are raised, they're slaughtered for the meat. And I've been fortunate enough in the industry to kind of see all sort of aspects. And the place I worked at before District Leather Supply was actually a tannery itself. And so they actually got skins. One thing that really changed the game for them was there was all these slaughterhouses killing these animals for the meat that we eat, regardless of who it goes to and where you buy it from. But then they were putting these skins out at the side because they had no use for them. And they're sitting outside rotting. And they pile and pile and pile until USDA comes in and says, hey, you can't do this. This is a health hazard. We're going to shut your factory down for a week or two, and then they have to figure out how to get rid of them. So they have to pay someone to come and throw them away in a landfill wherever. So this company saw a avenue where they could come in and say, hey, we'll take those skins off of you. Let us tan the skins. You're going to pay someone regardless whether they go to a landfill or us. We'll buy them off of you. You don't get shut down from USDA from them sitting outside your facilities and just rotting because you have nothing to do with them. 
and it's a win-win. So in that case, yes, it is sustainable and the products are going to last longer. They're done right. Then fake leather, faux leathers, vegan leathers, you know, there's leathers made out of cactus plants and mushrooms and everything else. But I don't know if they'll stand the test of time. That belt that you get from your great, great grandfather, that's still intact. And maybe you have to change the buckle out, but the belt is still good. And there's a reason for that. So I think it's kind of the best way you can honor the animal. And especially if you can turn it into like a beautiful product, because at least in America's culture, regardless, it's going to get slaughtered. Like, I think there's very few cows that are raised for their skins. They're raised for the meat. And then the skins are a byproduct of that. And then it even goes down to the fat that they scrape off those skins. That's using your makeups and the Tylenol PM capsules that you swallow at night and dissolve in your stomach and anything gelatin related to a degree. They make money off that, too. And so at that point, you're kind of using every aspect of the animal versus just letting some of it go to waste. And if it is going to waste, then that's not a good thing. It's not something I stand by or support. And obviously, I would love to see all the animals treated very nicely and cared for and fed well and not packed in, overcrowded, stepping on top of each other. Like, I don't want to see that, but it happens. And hopefully you can try to associate with the ones that do it right and and honor the animal in the best way you can. So how do you know who is doing it right? Just from a consumer standpoint. You don't. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if you do, uh, to be honest with you. Like I said, one of the companies I worked for, they would literally get a a shipment of pig skins every day that was just pulled in on a truck and dumped on the concrete and dumped into a vat of water that was then put on a pallet and shipped to Mexico to get tanned to come back and sell. And the factory where the pigs came from is a huge factory in downtown Louisville. I want to say it's only metropolitan slaughterhouses, like major slaughterhouses in the country. I could be wrong on that. Like I said, you know, that's not fact or anything, but I know that they have been trying to get them to move out of the city for years and years and years. I don't know what's holding them back. If it's politics, money, whatever, that's keeping them in there. I mean, obviously some big companies get their sausage and things from there. But like, yeah, you see truckloads of pigs coming in and every day there was a truckload of skins that came and they've had countless protests and people that go undercover have exposed them not treating the animals very well. And so like you see that and you know where they're coming from. It's been going on for years. They say they're probably doing the right things now. Are they really? I don't know. They don't let cameras inside their buildings. So if they don't let cameras inside their buildings, what does that tell you? Yeah, it's just. So you don't want to see that. And that was upsetting part of it, knowing that this is what was coming through here every day. And like it is the business. And like those those pigs are being slaughtered for the meat. At least I'm glad the skins are being used for something else and not just being thrown out. But it's it's been a thing going on for oh, years and years back on. I mean, it's a major plant. Because most slaughterhouses are out like out in the middle of nowhere especially those types out by airports and stuff where there's like not like neighborhoods and things like that where they're trying to develop. And it's a very up and coming area of downtown Louisville. And they've been trying to get them out before they were even doing this project. And now it's still the same thing, but I don't know if they'll ever go. Hopefully they do and they get it right. But again, that's kind of like an example where I've seen, it's like, I don't know for a fact, I haven't, I haven't stepped foot in their facility to see how they do things. But Common sense kind of tells me that there's probably some shady stuff that's been going on. Maybe it's been cleaned up. Maybe it's not. 
again, if you say there's no cameras allowed in your place, there's a reason why. If you're doing nothing wrong. <laughs> they don't have like a big secret as far as like recipes and stuff they're trying to hide or anything like that. Pretty obvious what you're all doing here. Right. Uh, this is going to sound like a trash question. Mm. And a trash question is like a question I shouldn't ask, <laughs> but I'm asking anyway. How were you able to see that? I know that you don't work there now, which you work at a wonderful place. One of my favorite places. Yeah, very blessed. The whole team at District Leather Supply treats everyone like family. And if you have questions, you can ask the team and they'll try to answer it. Mm-hmm. It's a home away from home for me, and I truly value it. That's good to hear because we try to make it that. And we want people to be able to come and feel like they're just welcome and, you know, part of the team to a degree. And especially the live sales and stuff like that, we've really been able to build a connection with people. And I have a lot of customers' cell phones and text them rather than email them or go through Instagram because it's just easier. And that's very cool. And especially when they're in the same thing you're doing. It's like you're both cheering each other on. You want to see them do good. Obviously, there's customers out there where I ask them questions. I'm like, hey, like, you know, how do you do what you're doing? Like, this is incredible. So it's cool to be a part of and cool to see. Now, my trash question is based off where you previously worked. Mm. And it's how could you stomach knowing what was going on? I guess the answer is you couldn't after a while and you left. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was other reasons. But yeah, I mean, it just was obviously just not a fit for me. I mean, that's pretty much all I can say. And as far as the moral aspect of like where these skins are coming up and what you're doing, at the end of the day, I didn't really know the answers. There's just that feeling. This is a stepping stone. It's a learning experience. This isn't the place I see myself making a career out of. Don't get me wrong. There are great people there. I stay in contact with a few of them, boy, and it's like, hey, you know, in the same understanding. I completely understand that. And I think that's honorable. And it wasn't as creative as I wanted it to be think they have intentions of doing that, but I don't know if they really do. And the moment I stepped into district leather supply, like I saw it, I was like, this is more my vibe. This is where I could see myself thriving. And they are trying to be ahead of the curve as far as leather companies go. And it's just a different world. You know, like some people are still stuck kind of in the old ways of leather craft and that Western style. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's still a huge market for it, but it definitely has changed. And it's just cool. Like I said, the moment I walked in, I knew it. I was just like, this is where I need to work. I was actually on a business trip to District Other Supply for a maker's meetup with the previous company to try to get them to carry some of our leather and meet some people. And I drove back home and two days later, I saw them post on Instagram, we're hiring for this. And I reached out and was like, what's this all about? And we chatted over about a week. And next thing you know, I'm packing up my bags and put my two weeks in and Driving to Atlanta, <laughs> making it happen, <laughs> sleeping on the shop couch, showering at Planet Fitness. It was a grind for a solid month and a half. I greatly enjoy you. I'm glad they are out here. Oh, yeah. It's been a blast. Like I said, I'm definitely blessed to be where I'm at and I wouldn't trade it for the world. You know, that's where I wanted to be and I was willing to do anything I had to do to make it happen. So to back up a little ways, mm-hmm. did you start becoming a leather crafter when you were at the tannery? Before. Okay. Had like a creative itch pretty much all throughout school. I've been drawing and was always in art classes. Went to school for art, graphic design was my background. And then moved to Chicago, worked at the restaurant, was doing some freelance stuff, you know, something creative to a degree, whether it was painting, drawing, graphic design. I mean, build my mom a garden for her Mother's Day gift, just drawing that up. And so just always doing something with my hands. 
I remember I wanted a leather backpack or a leather duffel bag, like a legit leather duffel bag or like backpack, like $1,500 or $2,500 backpack. You see in the airport, someone walking, you're like, that's a nice bag. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to ever afford one of these, but I could probably figure out how to make it. <laughs> and I remember being in Chicago, working at the restaurant. I was like looking at videos online. I ran to Tandy and bought some veg tan. That was probably too thick. Actually, even before that, my first wallet was made out of cloth. It was all fabrics from Joann's. That was the first prototype ever. And it was sewn on a little home sewing machine, a little singer, and barely folded in half. There was nothing leather on it. From there, it's just kind of taken off. And I've yet to make a backpack or a duffel bag <laughs> five or six years later. I've made tennis shoes, I've made a little briefcase, I've made wallets, passport holders, belts, guitar straps, yet to make a backpack or a devil bag, which is hilarious to me. But it'll happen one day. The shoe thing kind of took over. Like that was like one of those things like I never thought I'd ever be able to do. And it was a cool thing to learn. And then that's been my focus for like the last two years. So before I ask you about the shoe thing, earlier you had mentioned... Any animal, their skin can be tanned. What is the tanning process? That I truly don't know. But from what I've seen, layman's terms is you take the raw hide from the animal that's been slaughtered, still got the hair on it and everything. And tannery will get that. They would throw it through a machine. It would shave the fat off the bottom. Before, they would just that fat would just fall on the floor. They'd scrape it up. And they would collect it in barrels and have to have, pay a semi-truck to come pick it up and throw it away. And then they realized there was an angle into it where all these cosmetics and dissolvable pill capsules and things, you know, basically gelatin related, can use this. So they started collecting it and selling it by the barrel versus having to pay for someone to dispose of it. So it became a profit for them. So then skin goes through there. At that point, they would trim off parts of the hide. They'd fold it up basically in a nice square They'd weigh it, they'd throw it on a pallet, and then they would basically grade it, depending if it had a big brand on it, had a bunch of scarring, things like that. They'd say, this is grade A, grade B, grade C. They'd fold it up, they'd weigh it, and they'd throw it on a pallet that was specific to whatever that was in the weight and the grade. And then that gets sent to a tannery where they basically remove the hair through a process and then they tan it. And you can basically tan it in multiple ways, but I would say the most common that people know of are chrome tan and veg tan. And veg tan is a more natural process from what I understand. It takes anywhere from four to six weeks, let's say, to finish the hide. And they use things like tree barks to get the color. Whereas a chrome tan is more of the leather that you're going to see on your leather sofa or in your car or on a boat. Things that can basically tan in 24 hours because they use really harmful chemicals to us and it basically speeds up the process. And they can pretty much make the leather whatever you want it to through the chrome tanning, color-wise, temper, pebbling, all that sorts of things. If you want a leather couch and you don't want to spend ten dollars to $20,000 on a veg tan leather couch, it's going to be chrome tan leather most likely because you want that couch to look like it did on day one, five years down the road. And that's what basically chrome tan can do. Whereas a veg tan, because it's still from a natural tanning of the animal skin, it's going to age over time like your skin. There are things you can do to prevent that, adding dyes and top coats and things like that. But if you're just talking about like a natural veg tan leather, it's going to age like your skin. And any exposure to light, sun, moisture, sweat, grease, 
oils, whatever, are going to stain and react with that leather and either stain that leather or cause a mark. So you don't want your kid to be running around outside sweaty and jump on a veg tan leather couch and have a big sweaty butt print on your couch. It's going to stay there for the, the remainder of the couch's life. Whereas a chrome tan leather would do that. So I guess that's kind of the difference between the two, the main difference. And I like working with veg tan leather. You know, chrome tan leather, it has its purpose. Don't get me wrong. But it's just a different tanning process. So one's really quick. And you have to use heavy chemicals to get there, but you can pretty much achieve whatever you want. And another way is a little bit longer and a little bit more natural of a process. So that's why people tend to lean towards veg tan leathers. As far as the sustainability aspect, you're still using natural chemicals and like I said, tree barks and things like that to get colors and finish this leather. I've watched videos of guys taking a skin out in the woods and it taken 30 days. And they literally did nothing but skin the deer that they killed over a log, started a wood fire and boiled water and put it in and took the hair out, deline the hair, and then took some tree barks, threw it in boiling water, put the skin in there, let it sit for 30 days, stretched it out over a fire, dried it out, and then you had a, a deer skin that was tanned. Like, it was wild. And I was sitting there watching this going, are you kidding me? So it's like... You really could do it all natural if you wanted. It's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be finished. It's not going to be polished, obviously, because it's done by hand. And that was going back to when we were talking about Tyson, you know, with the skin and stuff like that. It's funny when you're a tanner, you buy skins from everywhere. It could be big packers or like Tyson chicken and those type of companies that slaughter millions of animals daily, weekly, monthly, whatever. And then you have small packers who are more like your local butcher that slaughters, let's say, you know, only 10, 15 cows a year. And you get the skins from them. Like they'll buy skins from anybody that's willing to sell them a skin. The difference is, is when you go up to a big packer, it's a little bit more consistent because they have more machines and things like that that can remove the skins from the animal. Whereas a small packer is typically doing it by hand. And so the thickness and things of the leather can be a little bit more inconsistent because it was pretty much hand done versus a machine evenly doing it. And so that was interesting to find out too. It's like, so they get skins from everybody and they can range from all sorts of types of qualities. And it can vary depending on the level of sophistication, I guess you have at your facility. If you're a mom and pop type of shop, or if you're a mega corporation, it's just banging them out. It's all super interesting. And a lot of people don't think about it. And just because you're not thinking about something doesn't mean it's not happening. So all of those people who are vegetarian and vegan probably have had and ingested on accident meat byproducts. Your life has to be miserable because I can't imagine living today's society and not consume something that doesn't have an animal byproduct in it. It's a lot of work. It's serious work. And I know there's people out there that are dedicated to that. Can't even imagine just that alone is like full-time, if not two full-time jobs. Because like, how do you know? And you have to research everything. So I was talking to one of my coworkers earlier, and she has to have gluten-free. And most people, when they think of gluten-free products, they think you can't have bread, you cannot have such and such. Yeah. And because she needs to be gluten free, she's told me that she's eaten salads, but it's in the salad because she'll have a reaction to it. And that soy sauce will have gluten in it. Oh, wow. And I feel like it's the same way with meat byproducts, and we're just not realizing it. That information just isn't on the label because they're not listing every single item because you just don't know that information. 
I don't know. I mean, who do I know that works there that can tell me? Like my fiance and I have talked about how difficult it would be to have a peanut allergy, like a severe life-threatening peanut allergy, like how difficult that would be just to live your day-to-day life. And I couldn't even handle that. Couldn't even go to Chick-fil-A. You're like, there's no peanuts in this. Well, maybe they use peanut oil. They do use peanut oil. I know. That's what I'm saying. So like something as simple as that, like it's not just the physical peanut itself. Like how much peanut oil is in everything that we eat? Like who knows? And that to me would be a full-time job. So I couldn't even imagine being vegan, to be honest with you. Because of peanut allergy, I'm just like, there's no way I'd survive. No way. I wouldn't have the time and energy to research and invest, like going, is this going to kill you? So to try to live a strict lifestyle in today's world, I'm just going, there's just no way for me. That's a full-time job, if not more. And you still probably slip up all the time. You don't even realize it. More power to the people that can. Like, seriously, like I'm all for it. For a while, I was a vegetarian because I went to a slaughterhouse and it messed me up. The smell and... Yeah, it's bad. I saw too much. You've probably seen more than I have as far as that goes, honestly. Really, at the end of the day. The worst I saw was the skin. Like, I didn't see the whole process. And I've had uncles who've owned farms that we would go and pick up meat from them from cows they had raised. And you knew that they were raised well and fed well and taken care of. And you go in and when it was time, you know, you'd slaughter the cow and get the meat, take it back home. But like, I never saw the process. It's like, yeah, you have more experience in that than me. With my family, we never raised cattle. So I never experienced it on that end. But my mom, she had raised a pig growing up. And then like, they had to kill the pig at one point. And I was just. Yeah, there's no, I don't know if I could do that. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't. I've never gone hunting in my life. Shot a gun at like shooting ranges with like my buddies and stuff, but never gone hunting, never killed an animal in that way. And I don't know if I could, like, I always joke around people, like, I don't know if I could go like deer hunting. If anything, like, just because like maybe a bird or like a squirrel, just because it's small, but even then, I'm like, I don't know if I can handle that. Mm -mm. And the bigger the animal, I'm like, no, there's no way. I could only go snake hunting. I don't want, I want nothing. I want nothing to do with it. Yeah, that I can hunt. Yeah, yes, that. <laughs> because yeah. they terrify the I can hunt some snakes. I can hunt some snakes. Yeah, I have no problem killing the snake. Sorry for any snake lovers out there, but yeah, that's one of those things that I don't have a problem with. But outside of that, like, I, it, I don't know. I couldn't do it. And I have no interest in it, you know? And it's funny that I, I work in an industry that deals with hides. And it's like, that's where they come from. It's just like, no, but I'm not, I couldn't do it. So I guess it's pretty, you know contradictory i guess i don't know i don't think it's a contradiction some people call me a fraud (laughs) on my end of things i grew up where on deer hunting season we had a day off because no one showed up Mm -hmm. to school none of the guys showed up because they were always in camo they were always hunting it was their thing yeah i couldn't do it And my parents knew early on that I couldn't do it because when I was young, my parents tried to teach me how to skin a fish. Mm -hmm. And these are fish I was feeding every day. So I'd go down to the pier. I'd feed them with Rice Krispie cereal. I'd feed them with dog food every single day. Growing up, I'd come home after school, feed the fish, take my dog out, hang out outside, go bike riding. So... My parents are like, oh, well, let's go fishing. And when I go fishing, I catch and release. 
which also makes me a dick too because like they're hooked and <laughs> yeah it's like for your leisure you're just like oh i'm just gonna hook your mouth and pull you in real quick take a picture and throw you right back yeah you can go back and do whatever you're doing yeah, yeah. just let me interrupt your day no i feel that way too i mean when i went fishing that was me too but yeah so i caught a catfish mm-hmm. and my mom's like well you've been feeding these they're really big now we should have catfish for dinner and I was four or five. My mom puts the catfish in the bucket and she's trying to teach me how to skin it. I will never forget it. The smell, even now, if I have fish, I'll just automatically start wanting to vomit. Yeah, I get it. And my dad showed me how to skin a fish. We got off the little paddle boat. It was on my grandmother's lake. And he killed it pretty quick, so it wasn't brutal. It was smaller than a catfish. And uh, cut open a little Mountain Dew can that was thrown out in the woods or whatever, flattened it out. And that was his base. And he took his little pocket knife and this is how you do it. And I was like, wow, okay. I've never done it myself. That was when I was like 12 or 13. Never done it myself. Every time I went fishing, it was catch and release. I don't have any plaques of animals on the wall or anything like that. Like, it's just never been my jam. And I'm all for it. If you want to go do that by, by all means, like I support you and like do your thing. No problem with it. But I hope you try to utilize everything that you do kill. And it's not just out of just sport alone. And so. Shoot, we had deer burgers last weekend. A coworker of mine that they went hunting down a deer and they processed the meat and everything. He's like, We have so much meat, we can't eat it. He was like, Here, some deer meat. It was one of the best burgers I've had ever. I don't know if myself could go out mm-hmm. there and hunt it down. And no, nope. I think I could do it. And then when it came to the point of actually like just getting the animal back to where you got to get it at that point, that's where I would start. The guilt would set in and I wouldn't be able to sleep at night and it wouldn't be good. It would not be good. I'd have the guilt right away. I'd see a deer and my luck would be I would shoot a deer. The deer would only be injured. That's that's what I would fuck up. That is my yes. And then you got to go. Yeah, it's like, no, I, if it's not a clean, painless, then it's like I've screwed up and I would literally feel like the smallest piece of crap on this earth. Exactly. Which is just why I don't do it. You know, just like, yeah, so I'm not going to go do it. And then (laughs) the only reason, and I can't judge anyone who loves it because I love things that probably aren't great for myself and you do what you do and you love what you love. Sure. I mean, we all do. Yeah. And I think what's so interesting is that if people looked at like what you've done for a living, they would look at you and like, oh, you must be a cruel person. But really... It's the opposite. You care about the animal enough to make its life continue on after. You know, how that animal was treated or the type of environment came from. There's like these little divots like you can see sometimes in the hind end area of a half skin of leather of a cow. And what I've learned from the tannery that I worked at like what are these divots like in this leather they were obviously defects and it almost looked like someone was chipping golf balls and the golf ball went straight up and then just like hit the leather the leather was on the ground and the golf ball hit the leather and made an indention in the leather so you're like what is this i asked the guy like and he's like you want to know what that is and i was like what is that and he was like that is basically where the cows are too congested in wherever they're being contained at and the place has filled up with manure and they are basically sitting on their own manure to the point where 
it sticks to their fur and then embeds like to a degree in their skin and it gets so hard where it makes an indention on their skins and then they get slaughtered for the meat and then the skin gets taken to a tannery and the tannery tans that skin and when they run it through and take the hair out you have these divots and it's basically where like poop balls were stuck to their butt because they were in an environment where they couldn't stand freely or you know they were just basically in a feces infested area this is a product of their environment now can that happen naturally sure but like for the most part you go this is probably overcrowded raising it to try to keep that supply and this is what's happening and this is what's happening in the end result as far as the leather goes good thing is, is i've never seen that working at district leather supply but i've seen it other places and you're just like that's what's going on like wherever they're being raised and things like that and you go that's terrible and you're just like and you're like well what are you gonna do but like you do something about it for example you're saying you haven't seen it come in through the place you currently work at. And that's probably because your boss and the team are like, we're not going to work with this tannery because we know where they get their leather. Yeah, We're not going to have them make profit off of that. Sure. I mean, I don't know necessarily if it's pointed in that direction, but it's like there's a certain quality that we want and we know where we can get it and we feel good about it. So therefore, we'll go that route. And most of our stuff comes from Italy, to be honest. So why Italy? They just have it down. They've always had it down. They've been doing this for hundreds of years. American tanneries kind of figured out how to do things. And so people were able to catch up, be able to put out good quality stuff. I don't want to say like American tanneries are not good or anything like that. No, it's American tanner that puts out some of the best leather in the world. But it's just like old world way of doing things. They're like the pioneers of it to a degree. I've heard at one point they didn't use barbed wire as much in Europe as we do. I don't know if that's true or not, but that was one of those things where it's just our animals are treated a little bit more rough out in the pastures and they live a little bit harder of a life than some of the animals over there. I'm sure there's still people that take shortcuts over there too, but at least the premier people, you know, the people that are doing it right. And they take a lot of pride in that too. And that shows. And a lot of times like these tanneries are ran by families, you know, that have been around for generations and generations. And it's not run through big corporations and stuff like that. So I'd love to go out there and actually see it in person. And you just kind of tend to see more brands and scars on just American. And the hides are bigger, whether it's because of what we're feeding them or pumping into them. And they're monstrous sometimes. I mean, I remember going outside the country and seeing cows and like them being like, that's our milk cow and that's our meat cow. I can see the ribs on the meat cow. And that's what you raised to slaughter for meat. And I can see its hip bones and ribs and things like that. You're like, where's the meat? And that like, blew my mind compared to like what I'm used to seeing and what we see as far as like cows go. Besides the fact that we probably grossed out several of the listeners. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they're like, who the hell is this guy? So I'm going to pick your brain about, I think, three things. First thing is, mm-hmm. what are the different types of leather? So you had mentioned the tanning process, but for a consumer, if they were buying leather goods, what would they look out for is one question. Just a general rule of thumb. If you see something that says like 100% veg tan, if you see something that says top grain leather, like 100% like top grain, veg tan, leather, things of those nature, you have some probably good stuff. If you see genuine leather, that's the old marketing ploy. I mean, you can go to Walmart and you can buy a belt for 15 bucks. On the back says genuine leather. And that can mean a number of things. So 
When you get leather, there are two sides of the hide. The side where the hair basically comes out of would be called the top grain. And then the underside of that would be called the flesh side. So it comes pretty thick. So let's just say quarter of an inch thick. Maybe it could be even thicker depending on what the animal is. And then they finish that hide and then they split it down, which means they basically take a blade that cuts it in half and thins down the leather because you can't have a wallet that's made out of a quarter of an inch thick leather. So you have to thin that leather down. Now, what you want when you thin that leather down, you want to keep the top grain. That's the strongest part structurally. The fibers are super tight. That's the best part. Below that, they call it the split. So basically what falls off the bottom is still considered leather because it came from an animal hide. But what they can do is they can take that, which is the flesh side of the leather, which is not as strong as the top grain. The fibers aren't as woven as tight. You know, sometimes depending on how thin it is, you can tear it with your hand. They can take that and finish it and make it look really nice. And they can throw a top coat on it and paint it black and finish the edges. And the edges look really shiny on the rack and put a nice silver buckle on it and a $25 price tag. And they can stamp on the back genuine leather because it actually came from leather. But it's actually the weakest part of the whole hide structurally. So that's why that belt is going to crumble on you and bust in three months. And you're going to go back to Walmart and buy another $25 genuine leather belt. Whereas maybe you go to a local maker who is using, you know, like a hundred percent veg tan, you know, the top grain, you know, a thick eight to 10 ounce piece of leather for a belt, that belt is going to last you not only your life, but you'll be able to pass it down to your kids. And depending on how well they take care of it, they may be able to pass it down to their kids. It's kind of one of those things where it becomes like an heirloom to a degree. Like, you know, it can be timeless, but the genuine leather thing is just a marketing ploy and so you got to be careful with that and what you're paying for is actually what you're getting so 100 veg tan top grain leather full grain leather you're those types of things you know you're getting a good good product right so for example earlier we were talking about how if you buy fake leather it's probably going to be trash in like a few months so i don't want someone going out accidentally picking up genuine leather well, I won't say that either because you go buy a Louis Vuitton bag, it still lasts you 10 years, but majority of the bag is plastic. It's not leather. You know, the only leather on it is the strap and the piping on it. That's the only true leather on like the Louis Vuitton bag. But you're buying the name and whatever. So you're basically buying somewhat like plastic material to a degree. It's not real leather. I didn't know that. A lot of people don't care about that. They just want that LV. <laughs> the other question I wanted to ask you about is you're into shoemaking. Yes. So can you tell us the process of how you make a shoe? That's it's a very long process. You basically take a plastic mold, which is the shape of a foot, fits on the sole of whatever shoe you're making. So every shoe, they call it a shoe last, is basically the mold of the foot. Every shoe in its sole has a particular last that's designated to that shape. So for instance, I make a lot of Jordan 1s. I can't make a Jordan 2 or a Jordan 3 using my Jordan 1 last because the soles are different shapes and you got to get different last that fit that. Even though it's the same size and everything, it's shaped differently. So you have to have a specific mold for that sole. A couple of ways you can do it. You can get a tape of the last. You can draw the shapes of the shoe on the tape, flatten that tape out and create your pattern pieces that way. 
Some people take a shoe and they cut it apart, each piece, and they trace those pieces and get their shoe pattern that way. And then basically you cut out your leather, you put it together, glue it to the sole, and there's a lot more to it than that. But yeah, but it's definitely a wild, uh, a wild thing. Like I've never really thought I would end up making shoes until I worked at District Leather Supply. So I've been very fortunate to have access to machines and things like that to work on my little side projects, which helps because starting off can be a little difficult. There's definitely certain machines that help make your life a lot easier when making shoes. You could do it by hand, but it's definitely a beast. There are a lot of people out there that I follow on Instagram that do it by hand and they make killer work, but there's no way in hell I'd ever want to make a shoe by hand. I have to have a sewing machine. At some point, I want to make a custom pair of shoes just for happy impulse. You should start with a pair of Chuck Taylors. That's like a really easy shoe to start out with. Hmm. It literally is three pieces of leather that you sew together. The lining, so four. The tongue lining, five. Outside of that, like there's sew those parts, punch your eye holes, glue to the sole. Like you could make a Chuck Taylor in a day. And I think that would be a really good intro to shoemaking. Just to get you to understand like what it is taking the upper, what they call is a top of the shoe, not the sole. You'll take the upper off of the sole and then you use the sole for your shoe, whatever one you're going to build. You throw your upper away. Like that's trash. And then you're going to recreate the entire upper. But you'll get the whole experience of pulling that off, desoling, you know, your donor sole and getting that on and then sewing all your pieces together and using heel counters and toe puffs and super easy. Like there's hardly any reinforcements in it. It's a very good intro to shoemaking, I think. So I think you should start out with a pair of Chuck Taylors. You can knock it out in a day or two. No problem. Versus like a Jordan is going to be, you know, a lot more involved. I hear you say no problem, but if I started it, I'd probably be calling you in like 2 a.m. Like, hey. Hey, you wouldn't be the only one. No. Even myself, I'm constantly bringing things over to people I work with and Coach and Nashawn and and Bill and going, how do I do this? Or, you know, what do you recommend doing right here? I don't know. This is a new leather for me. Like, do you think this is going to work or you know, that's the cool part about it. It's like, you're really constantly learning all the time. Like, I don't think I'll ever have it perfected because you'll always look at someone else and go, how did you do that? How did you get your liner to fold over like seamlessly? There's so much to learn. So it's like, I don't think it's something I'll ever perfect. And that's the cool part about it. And then you learn different ways of doing the same thing. Basically it's like, okay, well I do it this way and he does it that way. I looked over and I was like, I kind of like the way he's doing it. I want to try that. So that's the good thing about, you know, where I'm at and working with who I work with. We're all kind of in the same thing and we're all creatives and we all do things just a little bit differently, but still the same. And so like we can each kind of go, hey, or we just come across new techniques or you're figuring out a way like, I don't know how I did this, but I figured out like using a spray can helps the wrinkles get out. So next time you do that, try this. And so then you pick up on those little things and kind of add it to your project, whatever you're making and just kind of keep improving so i think that's where there's a huge respect in the leather craft community because you're all trying to lift each other up you're all trying to learn new things oh for sure that's not always the case for Mm -hmm. creatives but with leather craft i can come into the shop and i can say okay these are five wallets i've been working on i've been working on these patterns forever Mm -hmm. Do you have pointers and you're willing to share the knowledge? I've always kind of looked at it this way is like, there's enough space for all of us. 
and there's a place for all of us. And if you have a good product and a good brand, you'll do okay. People will migrate to you. Like they will flock to you. If you're trying to rip somebody off, people see through that. They know. But like if you're like authentic and you're putting out a good product, there's enough space for everybody. And it's like, I don't think, I guess early on, you know, people really wanted to kind of hold their trade secret. And I understand why. It's how they're making a living. Like totally get it. You don't want someone to understand your secret recipe on whatever you do. But at least where I'm at, there's enough space for everybody. Do we all have the same marketplace to a degree? But we each kind of have our own niche. We each bring something to the table and we all have different experiences. And it's like, there's no reason to hide that. No one's benefiting anything from that, in my opinion. And I'm willing to help out anybody that I can on my journey just because that's what's happened to me to a degree. I've reached out to people who I've never known, never spoken to. And I'm like, hey, like, can you help me out with this? And they responded. And that meant a lot to me. So it's like, who am I to hold anything back? Say in five years, you hand me a wallet and I look at the wallet. I won't know it. But when you look at it, you'll be like, I got this technique from so-and-so. Him and I work together. Mm -hmm. I picked this technique up. And this is how I do my edges now. And I connected with 20 other people to create this wallet. Mm -hmm. That wallet, it's a collection of all of your experiences as a maker. Mm -hmm. And that is what's so beautiful about the process. It's an evolution of your creativity. Yeah. And I think it's just try to be a little bit better than the previous one. Figured this out. Now I want to try to figure this out. I don't have all the answers. I don't walk around and act like I do. That's for damn sure. But I'm just fortunate enough to be in a place and surrounded by a lot of just cool people and people that aren't afraid to share knowledge and go, hey, I just figured this out last night use it or don't. I don't care if you do or not, but I'm just telling you what I figured out. And (laughs) there's just no reason for secrets in my opinion. Because of all the perspectives, you could create a product 20 times better than you could have just by yourself. Oh, absolutely. 100%. What kind of insights would you give to those who would like to get into leather craft, but it's Mm. a terrifying field? Well, I'd say it's not terrifying. Just know that going in. It's not a scary thing. It's a pretty open community. It's not something that you're going to walk in. Everyone's going to be like, "Mm, not going to give you the time of day. People are looking to help people out, even just talk about leather. So if you just kind of get in the right groups, you'd be surprised the information that's out there and being spread. I would say do your research. And when I say that, I learned a lot of what I learned from YouTube, to be honest with you. And I found like a company in Italy that made wallets. I really love what they're doing and just their whole aesthetic. They were incorporating like really thick wool, like natural veg tan leather. And it was just gorgeous stuff. And back then it was just wallets and like iPad cases. Now they're doing shoes, bags, like everything now. But this is like probably seven years ago when I came across them. And for me, it was just like, let me just try to learn the craft by trying to make. I'm not going to buy their product, but I want to see if I can make what they're trying to do. And watching tons of videos and asking questions and reaching out to people and not being afraid to be vulnerable. Just say, hey, I don't know what I'm doing here. Can you just help me out at all? Just give me one or two pieces of advice. And outside of just doing your basic research, trying to figure out what you want to make. Do you want to do it by hand or do you want to do it on more of a production level and get a sewing machine and bang some things out? There's no right or wrong with either way. It's just kind of figuring out, okay, what is my brand? What do I want to be? You know, people say, well, it's not truly handmade. If it's not hand sewn, whatever. It's like, well, that's 
in the eye of the beholder at the end of the day. Like you could sew it on a sewing machine, but everything else was cut by hand. You were gluing by hand. You just had a mechanical sewing machine putting the thread in. To me, that's still handmade. Some people say it's not handmade unless you're hand stitching it. It's just like, where do you stand? What do you want to be? And what do you want to put out there? And experiment on the leather and mess around and screw it up. Outside of doing your research, invest in some good tools. Because even though they may seem a little pricey on the front end, it's going to save you a lot of money. And we all go through this learning curve. I mean, that was how District Leather Supply was built, being a maker, the owner, and just getting things that you necessarily can't use for wallets or whatever. How do I get rid of this and make money? And next thing you know, he's got a full-blown business in his basement, and now he's in a warehouse, and we're doing big things. So it's going to be a learning curve. You're going to mess things up. But if you can, invest in some decent tools that will last you. It's going to make your life a lot easier, I promise you. I think you can attest to that. I think we both had a variety of experience with different quality of tools. And I can tell you, there are some that we all started. We all started there. But if I would have just taken the time, even when I bought my Juki sewing machine, I bought that because of the YouTube videos I had watched that this is what you need is the Cadillac of sewing machines, flatbed. You want to make wallets, stuff like that. Okay. But then I realized I want to make some bags and making turned bags on a flatbed sewing machine is not the easiest thing in the world. And I probably should have got a cylinder arm sewing machine. And if I had just done my research a little bit more and not jumped the gun, I could have had a machine that could have done both. And so now I'm stuck with this one and it's a really good machine. I ended up selling it, you know, and it, everything, you know, worked out and was fine. But it was like one of those learning experiences, man. And when I got it, I was excited and I did some wallets. And then when I went to go do my first bag, I was like, oh, this is not going to work the way I thought it was going to work. <laughs> if I really want to do this right, you have to buy another sewing machine to do this. And it's like, I could have got that from the get go. Just try to figure out what you want to do and have fun with it. Chris, thank you so much for hanging out. You do so much in the community. What do you want to do in the future? It's a really great question. Still trying to figure that out myself. You know, I am affiliated with a diversion program in Atlanta for young men who are first-time offenders, and they basically give them an opportunity to be a part of this group and have mentorship, and they give them guidance, business opportunities, things like that, versus jail time. But it's a very strict program and they have to stick to the course or otherwise can go right back to jail. Just being involved in more things like that, just kind of more like grassroots community involvement. I would like to do more shoemaking. I'm in the process of doing a collaboration with a corporation back home. And so I like to do more corporate gigs, making shoes for them and kind of crossing those two worlds. Just continuing to expand my creative arsenal it all started with the pencil and it's like i've kind of tapped into a lot of different things and it's pretty cool and like i said i never thought i'd be making shoes and here i am so i don't necessarily know what the future holds but i feel like there's some good things coming i feel like if i keep doing what i'm doing um something will come my way that you know i'll go okay here's my purpose this is what i'm meant to do i feel like i'm just slowly chipping away at that i don't know if i'll ever like truly have a full grasp of what that is and expand on that and just kind of make the world a little bit of a better place after I love that. So, Cruz, I am going to let you head out, but where can we find you on the web? Primarily, I'm on Instagram, Made Leather Goods. So, it's M A Y E D Leather Goods. That's pretty much where I post most of my stuff. I don't have a website. I need to get on that. I've been so bad about dragging my ass on that. But uh, if you have any questions, you can see pretty much all my leather goods on Instagram, Facebook. You can DM me directly. You know, I answer anybody's message. 
I got some people asking me to make some watch cases and things like that, which will be kind of cool to entertain, just kind of step away from the shoemaking thing and switch things up. So I'm not against, you know, making other leather goods other than shoes. Like that's not all I'm doing right now. It's, you know, good to kind of switch things up. So yeah, primarily on Instagram, but hopefully I'll have a website up in this year and some sort of official way to uh, contact me and, you know, get legit paper-wise LLCs and all that stuff. But primarily just kind of just doing it kind of freelance on the side and as things come. So just enjoying the process right now and just kind of getting better every day. I feel like kicking your butt on this because I know of your awesome badass design skills. You have the tools at your disposal to make a website. You're so slammed with all these side projects and creative endeavors and just exploring Leathercraft that you haven't even built the website yet. Yeah, I will say that. When I went to graphic design, it was not for coding. Like, that is not my thing. So I know I can build a website on Wix or, like, you know, one of those little things just to get something up. But it's funny because I I still incorporate it in what I do. Like, I'm making a pair of NASA shoes, and I created a shoebox for it. And all the graphics on the shoebox were created in Illustrator and used my graphic design background to make that happen. So it's like I'm still using it. Just not in the way that I thought it was going to be. You know, I thought I wanted to be in like some big marketing firm and stuff like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's like I need to be doing more things with my hands. I need to be trying something new in the way where I can go, how can I use this and what I'm doing to just elevate it just to the next level? Constantly just trying to make it a little bit better, a little bit more just professional, different, whatever. Yeah. Cruz, I have so much respect for you. I hope you know that. I appreciate that. And you too. And I'm going to say, you're a badass designer. Like I look at your graphics. I'm like, when I look at your stuff. I'm like, this is what I had in mind, like what I would be doing, but I'm not, but it's cool because your graphic skills are sick. And it's like my type of style too, which is like interesting. Thank you for the compliment. I greatly appreciate it. (laughs) And I've been getting sneak peeks on your Instagram. It blows my mind. The way that you make the shoes, the way that you go above and beyond making wearable art. That's so valuable. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. When I make a wallet, it's not just something on my computer. It's like a living, breathing thing. It's going to evolve because I'm using vegetable tan. So the leather is going to change through time. Mm Mm-hmm. And you're making these shoes that are going to carry people through lives. That's a lot of creativity and a lot of time and a lot of effort. And another area that I really respect you in is you could have gone into a company where you hated it, but decided, yeah, I'm making decent enough money. I'm going to hold on to it. And what makes me so impressed with you is you're like, it didn't fit. I didn't like it. I'm doing something different that's going to make me happy. And some people never do that. Yeah. But also understand, it took a minute to get there. It wasn't just like I didn't get a couple jobs right out of school to the marketing companies I applied for and just like threw it up in the air. Like I worked at a restaurant for four years. So my first gig in Chicago was a being a busser and then came a food runner there, became a server, became a bartender kind of worked my way up just to survive in Chicago, doing a little bit of freelance graphic design for that restaurant and a few other things. And then I move away from Chicago and then couldn't get a job really doing anything was trying to get a job at like Payless or shoe sensation doing their graphics. Didn't get hired there. Reached out to a family friend and was just like, who are some of the creatives in town that you know of who's doing it that I can go talk to? And she was in the mortgage industry. 
She was like, well, I'm looking to hire a loan officer. Would you be interested in that? So I looked into that. I was a mortgage officer for three years, giving people home loans, making good money for my age at that time. And I saw the potential, like I can make a shit ton of money doing this if I really wanted to dig my heels in and make this my life. I was slowly dying behind that desk going, I got to be creative. I was still looking at some leather things on the side here and there, but like, I got to figure out how to make this my everyday and even my nine to five to a degree in some way, shape or form. So like it didn't come overnight. I don't want it to seem like that. But at the same time, I've had a lot of different experiences that just kept showing me you need to be doing something creative. You need to have something that's challenging you all the time or presenting you opportunities to try something new. And whether or not you're going to use that later down the road, like say you did it and you're still creative and you're working with your hands and I may be on my feet all day and not in a plush office on a desk. I may be rolling leather for literally eight hours. My back's hurting and my forearms are hurting, but it's like, I don't want to be anywhere else. So I'm finding my path, but it took a little bit to get there. And I definitely had to have different experiences and a lot of, I guess, no's or like, I wouldn't say no, just like. You're creative enough, but you're not quite there yet. Why don't you come back in six months or a year? Kind of like answers and going, damn, well, I don't know if I have six months or a year. Or do I want to dedicate that to you? I didn't know if I was fully committed at that time. And I was just trying to find my place. And so to make a long story short, it didn't happen overnight. I feel like I'm kind of finding my place and my lane and, and things that make me tick and that drive. So it's definitely been good. Your stuff is amazing. And I see that creative spark. And I'm so thankful for it, Chris. No, thanks. I appreciate, you know, you have me on this and just chatting about this. And it's my first podcast ever. So it's exciting for me. This is awesome. I never thought I'd be highlighted on a podcast. So it's a big honor. <laughs> Seriously. Thanks again for listening. If you like this episode, it would be awesome if you took the time to subscribe. And if you want to leave me your thoughts to continue the conversation, email me at info at happyimpulse.com. You can also find me on Instagram at Happy Impulse. And as always, thank you for giving a thought.